Hello everybody, I'm Chloe Maidley and welcome back to the podcast. On this podcast, I speak to professional athletes, coaches, physique competitors, dietitians, nutritionists, and leaders in the field of health and fitness from all over the world. Thank you so much for joining me and I hope you enjoy today's episode. If you're new to the podcast, make sure you like, subscribe, review, and leave a comment to let others know about everything we've talked about. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram where I'll announce what's coming up on the podcast and other great content too. I'm at Maidly Chloe. Thank you so much. Let's get started. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. So today's guest is someone that I've actually wanted to have on the show for a long time. But truth be told, I never reached out to him because I presumed he'd be far too busy. But for this series, I want the best of the best. And he really is one of, if not the best in the business. Brad Schoenfeld is a PhD, amongst many other things, a professor of exercise science at Lehman College in New York. He's published more than 250 peer-reviewed papers on various exercise and sports nutrition topics, and he is the author of the acclaimed textbooks The Max Muscle Plan, which is the new one, and of course, the renowned science and development of muscle hypertrophy. It is an honor to have you on, Brad. Thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure, Chloe. Let's just start from the very beginning. Talk to me about your journey into becoming a natural bodybuilder and going on to win multiple titles. How and why did it all begin for you? Yeah, it's probably a uh, somewhat common story, but I was a really skinny kid uh, growing up, insecure about my physique. It, you know, I impeded my self-confidence and uh, I found weight training, or I guess maybe it found me or a combination of both. And uh Really, I took to it like a fish in water, and uh, the rest kind of is history. That once I started getting into it, I wanted to, uh, for myself, it just was part of my development that I would show myself that I could do this. I competed multiple times as a natural bodybuilder in the mid to late 90s, then realized that my genetics, that I wasn't going to do, I wasn't going to take pharmacological enhancements to go on and anything in a professional. My genetics just were limiting in that respect. So uh, really my journey after that was in helping, primarily helping other individuals achieve similar goals and and particularly at the higher levels. Uh, So I worked with a lot of, and still do uh, to some extent, work with uh, some of the top uh, bodybuilders and physique athletes. Yeah, I I know you do. You're kind of, I think you're kind of largely regarded as uh, as the best coach uh, out there. It's interesting how you talked about just making a very conscious decision to stay natural. I had Eric Helms on a few episodes ago, and he was talking about coming to that conclusion and really thinking about that decision. Was that something that you just instinctively said, no, it's not something I'm going to do? Or was it like more of an informed decision that took you a while to, to kind of come up with an answer to? First of all, Eric is a good friend of mine and colleague and one of the top people in the biz, so Mm. good that you had him on. For me, uh, I'm always very introspective and thoughtful about uh, these types of things, and everything in life to me is, virtually everything, is risk-reward, cost-benefit. And, uh, I mean, it's just something that over time, you know, you you just you think about, or I did, and the costs weren't worth the benefits. I said, what would I get if I did that? And if I didn't do that, what would I get? And it just to me wasn't even a close decision. I, it wasn't something I had to be like, wow, this is really a tough decision. I just didn't think that the costs anywhere out, near outweighed the benefit. 
Yeah, I, I love that. And I think that's a very good um, lens to see life through. But um, I, 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 I do want to say is that I certainly don't, I've worked with many people in the field who have other opinions and I have no issue. <laughs> These are, it's an adult decision. As long as you're an adult, I certainly don't think that kids um, should, I don't think they're in the right state to make a decision. But once you're an adult, uh, we all make our own decisions. I have a libertarian attitude as far as that goes. And uh, I, I have no uh, ill will against that. And uh, these are, again, things that uh, as long as you are understanding the risks, I, certainly when people ask me, I try to inform them. The, these aren't things I, I think that there's too much polarization and that too much judgment. And I, certainly I do not cast uh, judgment on it. Well, I mean, because you're well, you're a scientist, so kind of you don't you don't fall victim to extremes and pendulum swings, which is probably why you've had staying power. <laughs> the, the, well, and and where the judgment comes in is, and this I have seen is where someone will take uh, anabolic enhancements, if you will, and then compete as a natural bodybuilder. That really does an injustice to those who are competing naturally. So I, I have seen that. I, I know of some people who've done it. Do they not do um, drug testing in natural They do, but I mean, usually it's polygraph testing and you can get around that. And there's other ways to get around. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's ways you can fool that. I, I know some of the uh, organizations are going to, to urine tests, which certainly are much more indicative. They're, they're much more diagnostic. But even with that, there are people masks things and I, it's beyond my uh, pay grade as far I don't really get into all those things but I do know that those are things that can be done and certainly at the level of taking a polygraph test it's uh, defeatable oh, oh gosh of course it is I'm, I'm I mean I'm shocked that anybody I'm shocked that anybody thinks that that's um that's an acceptable thing to do but but, but there you go so you've been in the industry for a really long time now what is it is it over three decades at this point it is. I started when I was eight. That's why I look so young. So, uh, yes. <laughs> Pushing three decades, um, correct. Guys, it's just so impressive. You've seen all the trends and the fads come and go. And and now, you know, on reflection, do you think that the evidence-based approach has, is finally having its day in the sun? Or do you think that the health and fitness industry and, you know, the physique community, the bodybuilding community still have a hell of a way to go in terms of science-based approaches? I think both. I, I think that we have come a long way and that certainly uh, evidence-based practice has made its way into many of the, pro again, I consult with and have with the many of the pro bodybuilders, but we still have a long way to go that there's still... Uh, a huge gap in that and, and there are many who still are gym bros and uh you know the look it's i can understand it that most people are not scientifically minded and uh if they're gonna go up just like i was when i was a kid i uh i didn't go up to the nerdy uh i shouldn't even say nerdy because i was gonna say fitness <laughs> pros aren't necessarily nerdy but i didn't go up to the you know, the personal trainer who had a degree uh, in exercise science or the researcher, I went up to the dude with 52-inch chest and 20-inch arms <laughs> and said, how do you get like that? And, you know, it was a, it's a warped mindset, but uh, I, I do think that we still have a long ways to go before evidence-based practice is the norm rather than the exception. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I work more with the gem pop and lifestyle. I do have a few like physique athletes, but I, I would say that in terms of that community, it's it's definitely getting better. In terms of the gem pop, I think it's as bad as it's ever been. And I think the mainstream media, certainly in the UK, have so much to answer for. But 
look, I'll be, I'm not going to have you on here, you know, for the full 45 minutes of this podcast to reflect because that's just going to be a complete waste of your incredible brain. I have so much to ask you about from muscle hypertrophy to sports nutrition to broad spectrum body recomp. And I want to try to get through at least some of it with you. So I think let's just start with square one hypertrophy. Hopefully by now my listeners will understand the bare bones basics behind it. But I want to go a step further with you and ask you about those of them who have a very mature training age with a, a kind of a really hefty amount of, of muscle mass by now. What is your take on the genetic healing? And for all the really mature lifters out there, what would you advise that they do to keep encouraging that hypertrophy to occur? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, so of all, the first question is about the genetic ceiling. My view is, is that there is a theoretical ceiling, but no one ever reaches their ceiling. There's no, anyone who says that they've reached their genetic ceiling is just blowing in the wind. You, you have no way of knowing. The only way you have knowing is if you've tried every possible alternative, which obviously can never be done. So the concept of a genetic ceiling is, is really just a, it's conceptual. Uh, it is a concept. Uh, so, you always can do other things, and whether you uh, increase your size is dependent on genetics and the in interaction with the training response and nutritional response that you're uh, using. I will say this, that in my vast experience of working with very high-level competitors, there has never been a, a individual that I haven't been able to help get some more muscle. Now, Certainly what happens, and there's no question, that as you your training age uh, increases, you're going to have a diminished potential for growth. So the um, progress that you're going to make is going to slow down exponentially over time. And at the very high levels, especially when we're talking natural bodybuilding, you might only be able to get one or two pounds additional growth in a year and have to really struggle. I, I will say this too, that as you get closer to your genetic ceiling, that's when it really starts to become more important to take a scientific approach to your training. At the beginning phases of training, virtually anything can work for most people. Scientific approach is always important, even at the early stages of training, but it becomes increasingly important within advanced training age. And uh, really what my suggestion is, is that a number one, you have to take this scientific approach. And number two, you have to be willing to intelligently experiment and then do it in a systematic fashion where if something isn't working, you then need to move on and understand the different variables and how they may be manipulated to ultimately achieve the personal response. Because the training response to exercise and nutrition as well is highly individual. When I carry out a study, we see we report the means in our studies, but the within the in individual responses, they're highly variable. And um, that's where results of a study, you never take research and say, this is the be all end all. It's never, virtually never, from an applied standpoint, uh, something you can say, well, I'm going to program off of that. You can take that as a guideline, but then you have to experiment. Everything involves intelligent experimentation. And if you're an astute uh, practitioner, you can systematically manipulate your training, assess where you are, and then decide whether you need to continue to uh, change, alter what you're doing, or whether it's working and you're going to continue going. And at some point, it will plateau off and you have to reassess. So it's a constant 
a battle between progression, uh, plateau regression, and manipulation. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I was um, obviously because I'm I'm a big follower of um, like the, all the 3DMJ lot, and I know that you are like in that mix as well. And I I, I remember seeing um, Alberto Nunez's physique off the back of the lockdown that you guys had in the states. He had he gained a visible amount of muscle mass for his you know last season, and I was just. I was amazed and he talks, you know, frequently about just the non-negotiable, it's the basic science, ticking the boxes every day and continuing to progress your physique. And I thought it was just the perfect kind of proof of what you were saying, that it's the genetic healing is hypothetical and there's no way of knowing. Alberto is a very astute guy and I, I think he makes a, you make a really good point because he certainly is at a, an advanced training age and he continues to progress as a bodybuilder and, and there's many others. So uh, it's, you never... If you're saying that you are at your genetic ceiling, you're self-defeating. Uh, that, that's a, mm. uh, to me, the sign that you're just not willing to, and perhaps able to put in the necessary time and effort. I, I completely agree. Um, I, I wanted to move on, kind of segue from that mature training age and training question to talk about progressive overload. And I wanted to ask you, would you advise that lifters change their training split over time to allow for increased volume over time? Or do you have a preferred kind of or optimal training split and training frequency kind of right off the bat across the board? So first of all, as far as the split, there is no, when you say favorite split, to me, your split is going to be individualized. So when I uh, consult with the bodybuilders, it would be based upon what their weak points are, their strengths and their weak points. And uh, you're devising your split so that you can most effectively get the muscles that are weak points uh, in more frequently usually, and uh, less so with your stronger points. And similar to that end, I am a believer, and this is um, not, th this really is more from a logical standpoint because we just don't have good research on it, but there is a very good logical basis for increasing volume, having volume as a, a, var a manipulated variable that progresses from lower to higher ends. Not, I think all too frequently we look at, this is my routine and it's kind of like, I'm gonna stick with that base. You know, how many yeah. sets do you do or what frequency? And I think that's the wrong way to look at this, that um, we should be looking at it as a moving target. And that from a volume standpoint, we know that uh, the body is very resilient and that for short periods of time, it can handle a lot of stress, very high levels of stress and thrive. The body thrives by adaptation through stress. But if you impose very high levels of stress for very long periods of time, ultimately it breaks down. And that just from a logical standpoint says, yeah, volume is a stressor. And uh, if you have short periods where you're performing high, higher volumes, high is a relative term, but high volumes for yourself, for the individual, and then intersperse that with moderate, lower to moderate periods, you can progressively use that as a form of progression to continue to make gains. And with that, I tend to, uh, my, my philosophy is to use frequency as a way to moderate or, or to distribute volume most effectively. So increasing frequency, if you're gonna, within a certain range, somewhere between generally eight to 10 sets per muscle group, somewhere around there, you're probably better off once you get above that amount, splitting up your volume over more frequent sessions. So let's say you're gonna do 20 sets uh, a week for a given muscle, you're better off doing two workouts of 10 than one workout of 20. 
on a general basis, I think that's the case because there is. Uh, you have to also remember that for a given session, especially if you're training hard, you're not going to be able to sustain your intensity over time. By by the time you're, let's say, at past an hour, hour and fifteen, hour and twenty, whatever that is, your ability to train hard is going to wane if you've been training hard in in the previous sets and and taking relatively reasonable rest intervals. I mean, if you're taking 20 minute rest, you know, you're doing the cell phone workout to some people there, that's different. But, uh, but if you're training hard, you're going to need to, um, you will not be able to sustain your level of effort. And thus, what you're training very later in that workout, let's say an hour, or two of the workout is just not going to be as effective as it is. So thus, it just gives a good logical uh, rationale for spreading out your volume. Yeah, I love that answer. And, and I think my listeners hopefully will know as well by now, like the importance as well, you know, when you take fatigue into into consideration of what you talk about, the rest periods and also, yeah, tapering and, and deload weeks being hugely imperative to progression. So we do know that volume is really the key to progressive overload um, in the context of muscle mass specifically. Brad, what does the research currently show with regards to muscle hypertrophy and the intensity of the loads lifted? Talk to me about that. Yeah, this is a topic where I've uh, really done pretty much a 180 in my thought process over the years. Uh, so it always had been preached that there was this um, magical hypertrophy zone of 8 to 12 reps. And uh, and certainly that very light loads were not uh, effective in building muscle. That if you're training above 15 to 20 reps in a set, um, you're not going to uh, activate uh, the highest threshold motor units, uh, which are associated with your type 2 muscle fibers, and thus that you're going to be deficient in the hypertrophic response. And that really has not panned out. And uh, our group has done a good deal of work in that as well as mm. numerous others. And uh, to me, the research is really compelling at this point uh, that you can get hypertrophy across a wide spectrum of loading ranges, provided you are training with a high intensity of effort. So if you're training you know, fairly close to failure. Now, with that said, there there seems to be, an, at least from an efficiency standpoint, a reason why you probably are best off in focusing on moderate uh, loading ranges for at least the majority of your training, a good portion of your training, but also having the other rep ranges integrated as well. Uh, let's say if you do 50% of your work with, I'm just throwing it, these, there's not like any hard numbers. <laughs> Examples. 50, 60% of your work with your moderate loads and then having some heavy loads, your three to five rep range, and some lighter loads, your 20 plus uh, rep ranges. The, at least there is some preliminary evidence that that might help to maximize the response. There is some preliminary evidence that uh, there may be a fiber type specific response where your lighter loads may uh, induce some greater preferential type 1 muscle fiber hypertrophy and your type 2 fibers might be better preferentially targeted through some heavier load training, moderate to heavier loads. That's still, I think, a topic that needs more research. But regardless, it, it cert here's what I'll say. There certainly does not seem to be any downside to that, and there's a potential upside. So again, when we talk about a cost-benefit, it would have a good cost-benefit. Yeah, I, I love that. I find it I find it interesting. And I think you probably, I mean, as far as I'm aware, I've been doing this nine years, and I think you are probably the first person to really highlight the vast range of volume for effective hypertrophy. 
Hi guys, just a quick one. Adverts on the podcast are automated and we have no idea what may or may not play out, much like whatever pops up when you're browsing on the internet. This is an unsponsored podcast, but if I am ever plugging a product, you will know about it. Okay, so let's move on to kind of optimizing one's physique. So obviously as a bodybuilder, you, you want to protect your, your lean mass at all costs. But obviously the longer that you're in a deficit, you will start to see that, that lean mass take a hit. What does the research currently show is the optimal dieting approach when it comes to retaining or potentially um, even gaining lean mass while losing body fat? Is in is there a preferred kind of deficit percentage to start at? What about refeeds, diet breaks, time spent in a diet? What would you say is the best way to hedge your bets um, and, and hold on to that lean mass? We have some evidence. The issue, if you're talking about for optimizing physique, we don't really have good evidence in very lean individuals, in bodybuilders. Uh, so, you know, if you're talking someone who is uh, plus in your double digit body fat levels, the response is gonna be different than it is when you're yeah. delving down into your single digits. Generally speaking, a slower fat loss becomes much more important as you're getting into the lower ranges of body fat levels, that when, you're, when you have a good deal of body fat to lose, you can lose body fat at a faster rate without compromising muscle mass. But as uh, you start to get closer to your, this is a hypothetical, but quote unquote, your uh, set point, body weight set point, or below your body weight set point, really. Uh, your body is going to start to fight this fat loss more and try to pull you back. So are refeeds beneficial? The evidence on that is very equivocal now. I think there's a rationale behind it, but certainly not enough for me to say yes. Uh, the, we have good evidence of that. Similarly, diet breaks, we have some preliminary evidence that they might have some benefit. I, I think at this point, the real evidence shows that they have a psychological benefit, uh, which is important. So uh, I, I do recommend that people take either refeeds or diet breaks more from a psychological standpoint. We have some good evidence in case studies. So our group carried out a case study where we tracked a natural bodybuilder. This was a drug-tested, urine-tested competition. So I mean, not only do we know he was natural because of that, but we also got his hormone. We had, did hormonal testing <laughs> and his testosterone levels by the end of the competition or, or by the, the end of his diet uh, pre-competition phase were around 190, so we're pretty sure he was. If he was taking steroids, it certainly was. He got the wasn't working on him. Uh, yeah, <laughs> he he, uh, he missed out on that one. And what it was interesting, what we found was that he started out around 10, 11 percent, which is a low, obviously a low body fat range, and he was able to hold on to his muscle mass uh, for the first couple of months, first roughly two to three months did not really lose much muscle mass while he was getting down to around 8% body fat, 7 8% as I recall. And then once he hit, there was like a critical level, and then he just started dropping. It was like 50-50 with each pound of muscle. I mean, with each pound of uh, weight lost, 50% roughly was from muscle. So uh, whether that's individual, there's probably, again, between individuals differences. Perhaps it has to do with a set point that uh, someone with a higher set point 
might start that might start happening at a higher level. It's not like we can extrapolate his information to everyone. But I think it does give insights into the fact that at a certain point you do start to see a level where it becomes increasingly difficult to hold on to muscle. And whether there are strategies that might help to attenuate that drop off, that still remains to be determined. The case study we didn't manipulate any variables. We just we just followed what he was doing and and reported it. So uh, again, I think it's it's problematic. I guess is hopefully you can appreciate and that the listeners can <laughs> to recruit bodybuilding. You're just not going to do it. A bodybuilder's not going to say, "All right, uh, I'm doing my competition, which I want to do really well at, but I'll be a, your guinea pig and I'll let you manipulate me and I'll consent to being in a randomized trial." Just not going to happen. No, it's, it's, well, I mean, it doesn't hurt that it's you. And maybe if you got like a bit of a newbie, a bit of a fresher. But yeah, I mean, I can imagine they'd be like, I'm pretty sure I don't want to mess with my results just so you can get a, a, yeah, a kind of result. In the name of science, correct. And yeah. Well, yeah, I know, because, you know, there's so many more worthy causes. Um, <laughs> I find that interesting, you know, because obviously with the Matador study, everybody was kind of of the opinion that, that kind of the diet breaks and the refeeds would be great. And then it was the ice cap trial, right? It, we, did you, were you, in, was that yours? No, I, I think you're referring to diet break study was my uh, colleague, my Dr. Bill Campbell. So another yeah. really, really good researcher. And uh, He's been on the podcast. He's great. Yeah, really great uh, researcher. And uh, it didn't really show, it showed some beneficial effects. And look, here's another thing that's a really, I want to point this out. When you carry out a uh, nutrition study, it's very difficult to know how these subjects are actually conforming to the study. Mm -hmm. Uh, Once they're out, so like when we do a training study, at least the training aspect we're supervising every aspect of their uh, of their training, so we know in the gym they're doing everything they're supposed to. Even that now, their their diet, we have them do diet uh, recalls. Who knows, you know? But at least we can then say, well, if we have a good enough sample, even if there's some variance, if they're not reporting accurately, it's going to kind of even out between. Uh, groups. If you're doing a dietary intervention, that might not happen. If you have one group doing diet breaks and they're not conforming and another group not doing diet breaks, you can't necessarily assume they're not conforming equally to that. Mm. So uh, again, the level of confidence that you have in these types of studies is is less. I'm not saying it is what, what it is. It is what we have. And really the only way around it is to have a metabolic ward study, which costs a lot of money, and uh, unless you're going to have a health-related component to that, you're just not getting funding for the most part that would allow you to carry out a metabolic ward study in the name of bodybuilding science. You know, the, mm. bo- the Bodybuilding Federation is not giving grants. Uh, the <laughs> IFBB is not handing out grants for you to study uh, bodybuilders in a metabolic ward. So, uh, or, or anyone in a metabolic, you know, any uh, j- just for getting jacked reasons, you know, from a uh, muscle, you'd have to be looking at it from a health aspect. And is there a benefit to that? That's where you'd be able to get potential funding on, on these types of things. So yeah, and that's, and that's so so interesting, and that's what's so conflicting about you know a lot of the research that's been out there for so long. It is done on on, on an obese population, and that and and those results don't 
necessarily um, predetermine what's going to happen to like a, a bodybuilding, <laughs> very lean kind of physique community. And, and that's why I mean, Dr. Bill Campbell is it's so commendable because he's really, he's really kind of charging the cause there. And I love him for that. Um, the next thing I wanted to ask you about is, am I right in thinking that you did a study on mind to muscle connection? And I think I am right. And, and, and what were your, your kind of findings of that? Yeah, interestingly, it's the only study that I'm aware of to date, and I'm I'm aware of most of the studies that are published. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we carried out a study. This was 2018. It was published, I believe, and we looked at uh, biceps curls and leg extension. So I specifically wanted to take single joint exercises because they're just easier to have a mind muscle connection than, let's say, a squat would be or bench yeah. press to, to focus on your muscles, uh, multi-joint exercises tend to be more difficult because there's more moving joints. So we picked yeah. what were we considered relatively easy exercises, single joint exercises. We did it in untrained subjects. My thought, so most of my studies have used uh, trained subjects, but you pick a, a subject pool based on the goals of the study and what you think might be issues. And my thought process, and I think I chose correctly here, is that a trained individual like myself, if you were, I have a, every time I train, I focus on the muscle. If you would put me in a group that just says, get the weight up and, and not have a mind muscle connection, I would have a very difficult time adhering to that. And the thing with mind muscle is you can't know what someone is thinking. So there's no <laughs> way to know the compliance. So, we, you know, so basically one group we had, Mind muscle. We every time they did a rep, these were fully supervised. Our research uh, assistant, uh, who was training the subject, would say, "Squeeze the muscle, squeeze the muscle on the concentric uh, action." And in the other group, uh, they would say, "Get the weight up." So they would basically just try to get them get the weight up. And you could somewhat see, you know, there there is to some degree an ability to see the, what the effort they're putting in, the speed that they're when they just say, "Get the weight up." They're generally going to use somewhat of a faster repetition. The results uh, in the biceps curl was really interesting. Biceps curl, they had almost double the growth uh, in the group that did the mind-muscle. It's about 12% versus 6%. And in the legs, there was zero difference uh, in the quads. So there's no way we can know why. Uh, could it be chance? It could be. But what we surmised, at least we came up with a possible explanatory rationale was that it's much, the, the arms are much more conscious in terms of your uh, mind muscle. Whereas if someone says, make a muscle, Chloe, you're generally not flexing your quad, <laughs> right? You're, you, uh, and even just in how we interact every day, when we're, we use our hands to pick things up, we use our legs to ambulate, to walk and to kick things if we have to, you know, to, uh, so we use it for more gross movement patterns. And thus, uh, we also did exit interviews, and some of the subjects did um, tell us that they felt they had a more difficult time feeling, thinking about the uh, quad muscles. So could that be it? It could. But we, we need more research. One study is never a be-all, end-all. Uh, I think it gives some interesting insights, and there's been a lot of studies, quite a number, that have looked at EMG and show that you get greater muscle activation in the target muscle when you're thinking about it, which lends credence to uh, the, the results that we got. 
Yeah, I love that you did that study because you're like, what a, what is, what, what's something, something that anyone would just consider so immeasurable? You were like, screw it, I'm going to go do it anyway. I, I found it really, I, I read it ages ago and I found it really interesting and I, I did think it was you. Before you go, I, I want to say this too. So yeah, I'll tell you, Chloe, that I'm, as a researcher, I started out as a personal trainer for many years. And uh, mm -hmm. really my research, I think what has made my research uh, quite popular amongst uh, the public is that I'm researching basically everything that I thought of when I was a personal trainer. So it's from a practical standpoint, this is a study I wanted to, ca I, I couldn't believe when I was a trainer. It's like, why don't we have any research on things like a mind-muscle connection, any longitudinal research? So yeah, I'm basically studying all these things and have studied uh, topics that uh, I was always wondering why there wasn't research on these things. And, and they're very I think uh, relevant from a uh, practically relevant from a training standpoint. Oh God, yeah, and I think I actually I did a Q and A on Instagram the other day, and somebody said to me like, "Oh, I've just got my PT qualifications, and I want to become an online coach. What's the first thing you think I should do?" And I was like, "Bin the idea to become an online coach and go get some actual face-to-face -face PT experience because you learn more on the job when you're actually with clients, and you suddenly realize like how specific different people's biomechanics are and how different body types respond to different things, and that you can't do that as an online coach. I think an online coach is something. To be honest, it's an income." stream that you earn once you've once you've actually got the experience under your belt to say I'm really good at my job um I wanted to I mean I will say this to you you know at the end as well I as an evidence-based coach you know I have been doing this nearly a decade now I, I cannot thank you like enough for everything that you've done for for the community and and it's incredible work um and I wanted to ask you that like, is there an, an area or a kind of specific topic that you feel is a stone that's that's still left unturned, like a question or a, a broad spectrum kind of uh, hypothesis that you would really like to get some concrete answers to? Oh, so, I mean, we don't have time to go <laughs> through them all, but uh, I mean, I, I think certainly mechanistically, uh, that's where the biggest gaps are and understand because mechanistically means um, what causes growth mm -hmm. from a mechanistic standpoint. There's still just so much more to know. And people say, well, who cares? Well, when you understand the mechanisms, that can allow you then to design. It gives you greater insights into designing programs that are specific to maximizing a re adaptive response. So things like metabolic stress, muscle damage, mechanical tension, their interactions uh, with each other, and other mechanistic factors, so important. And uh, we're kind of scratching, I'm going to say scratching the surface. We know tons more than we did a decade ago. I wrote a paper that's become quite popular called The Mechanisms of Muscle Hypertrophy and Their Application of Resistance Training. And uh, the knowledge that we've gotten since that time has been vast. I ended up collaborating on a follow-up to that paper a couple of years ago. But in 10 years, uh, we're going to have a lot more than that. So uh, again, it's still uh, we're still in somewhat of our infancy. And just even with I mean, topics like periodization, there's very little quality research on topics like that. Uh, how to plan, when we talk about periodization, I think planning might be an even more appropriate word for me, especially from a hypertrophy standpoint. Uh, manipulation, various aspects of manipulation of var variables. So uh, recently, I, I think this is kind of a good uh, anecdote. Recently, uh, I collaborated on a it was a um, position stand for the IUSCA on muscle hypertrophy. And I collaborated with some 
really terrific uh, researchers in the field, some of the biggest experts in the field. And um, we came up with our evidence-based recommendations. I will guarantee you that 10 years from now, we will need to do a, uh, a revision of that position stand because we're just going to have a lot more knowledge and, be, and have differing opinions, just like my opinions over the past decade. And many things have shifted and sometimes quite uh, substantially. So, yeah, uh, oh, re research is evolving, and uh, we always want to make sure that we are in tune with the fact that what we know now uh, might need to be updated tomorrow. And this is something that I love about you, Brad, is that you, you're so... <laughs> You're probably, I mean, one of it, like I said in the intro, if not the most respected voice in the industry. And I love it how you just, you consistently and persistently say like science is ever evolving. And if you can't look back and be like, oh, actually I was wrong because new evidence now shows this, then quite simply, you're not going to keep up with it and you're not going to, you're not going to stay good at your job. And I love you for that because I think obviously in our industry, there's so much kind of dogma and to have someone like you stand at the forefront and be like, science evolves. You know, you have to evolve with it or you're going to be left in the dust. And I love that message. And now something I get asked a lot about, <laughs> quite tiringly, and you've done a study on this, is uh, fasted cardio as well. I just wanted you <laughs> to be the person just to just to quickly speak about what your what your study showed on fasted v, v fed cardio and kind of net fat loss. Yeah, so we carry, this goes back now, this is a long time ago, I believe we published it in 2014, yeah. so we're going on seven years or so, but um, yeah, we carried out a study, we had two groups, one of them uh, trained fasted, the other group trained fed, and we actually gave them the group that came in, so we tried to equate the energy, we gave the group uh, that was fed a shake, carb protein shake before they trained, uh, I think it was a half hour, 15 minutes, anyway, in a fairly close proximity to their training. And the other group, we gave it to them at the same point after the training, I believe 15 minutes to a half hour or so post-training. It was a four-week study, so it was a relatively brief study, but certainly that's enough time where if there was difference, you can certainly lose a good deal of fat in that time. Uh, there, we should have sh seen something, and really there was nothing. Uh, we, uh, we did not show any substantial differences. Uh, certainly that would be considered uh, beyond probability. When we looked at the uh, probability of differences, it was nil. And look, bottom line, if you actually look at the rationale, you can make a good case for something if you really don't delve too deeply into a topic. <laughs> but I published even before that a uh, review paper. And if you actually look at it, there's so many factors. And number one, by the way, when we talk about fat burning during exercise, a lot of it comes from intramuscular fat, what's called intramuscular triglycerides. And if you're well-trained, it can be up to 70 plus percent of the fat that you're actually burning during the activity. So muscle is marbled. If you get like a steak, you'll see like marbling in the steak. Well, that's your intramuscular triglycerides. That is not the fat that is underneath your skin, the subcutaneous fat, or in your abdominal region, which is what people want to target. They're not targeting the intramuscular, looking to target the intramuscular fat. So a lot of the fat that is actually being burned is not necessarily from uh, the fat stores they want. And there's just so many other things. The intensity, if you're doing like higher intensity exercise, you're burning more fat than the body can possibly um, oxidize. So the fat basically gets broken down. It's called lipolysis. But it ends up getting re-esterified. It goes back into the fat cells. It doesn't get burned. It floats around in the 
bloodstream and then goes back into the fat cells. The research actually on the topic shows you need to train for very long periods of time at slow speeds to have any acute effects on it. Acute effects don't look at what happens after the session is over. So post-exercise, your body is very the body is very efficient at substrate use. So if it's using more fat at one point, all other things being equal, it's going to use more carb, burn more carbs at another point. So again, all these things, all I can tell you is that in our study, we it was three days a week. It was uh, we did one hour of cardio three days a week. So we and by the way, we tried to bias it in favor of the faster cardio. So we did a slower intensity cardio, which would favor the fasted cardio based on the research. Yeah. We didn't want to do hit, which would basically cause that reesterification because you're b- breaking yeah. down. What I would say with good confidence is that it doesn't have any major. It's certainly not going to get you shredded. Can I say with good confidence that it might not have some benefit? No. On the other, uh, but I'll also say that I cannot say with good confidence that it doesn't have a negative effect. So it, mm. we just don't know. To say cost-benefit, if I'd say, well, it might have a positive effect and doesn't have a negative benefit, then you say, all right, do it. But it could have either. We just It's not going to have a big effect one way or another. I'm quite confident of that. It could have a small positive benefit. It might have a small negative benefit. It might have no benefit. It might have zero effect. So, <laughs> so yeah, I, I, uh, I, like, I like that study because I think it just really nicely kind of, um, I guess, epitomizes the, the fact that your body is very good at balancing itself out. So, you know, a few, and again, you know, lipo- it also, I think, punctuates the fact that lipolysis and fat loss are two different things. And yeah, re-esterification is a thing. So, okay, look, I know that you are a very busy man. I have asked you about 10 questions now, and I, I'm going to let you go. But um, before I let you go, I just want you to tell all my listeners where they can find you, tell them about your books or anything else that you're kind of promoting at the moment that you want people to know about or read about and then i will let you go okay I, i'm a uh, consider myself an educator put out a lot of free content on social media uh you just search for me i have a blog at lookgreatnaked.com, which uh you, you can go to that i, I do a lot of uh, speaking uh and you can look for my conferences uh, where i speak and i uh, do have two books as you mentioned earlier i have uh Science and Development of Muscle Hypertrophy, the second edition of that came out last year. Very proud of that. It's a textbook. And I have a book called The Max Muscle Plan, which is 2.0, is coming out next, actually in a few days. Uh, It'll be released. It's the second edition of The Max Muscle Plan, uh, which is more of a consumer book that has a a program for maximizing muscle mass and delves more on a consumer end into how to structure a program. So uh, you can check those out. And uh, again, just... uh, Follow me. Uh, most importantly, I want to uh, make an impact. So give me a follow. Yeah, well, you certainly do make an impact. And everybody listening, I cannot recommend both the books and also the follow enough. This is um, this is one of the greatest, guys. Um, Brad, thank you so much for coming on and have a lovely rest of your day. Thank you. And join us next week when we will have another brilliant guest on the podcast. Podcast Network.